Hello, everyone. Hello, colleagues. This is uh, Dr. Richard McCallum, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, the major journal for our society, the um, AFMR, American Federation for Medical Research. Um, as you know, as editor-in-chief, I also do a, a monthly uh, podcast. And here we try to select um, current topics that are newsworthy and of interest to our membership important clinical aspects, and also an opportunity to interview uh, experts in the field. Some have published in our journal recently. Uh, some may be members of our AFMR. Uh, today, uh, it's a delight to welcome Dr. Sonia Rasmussen, um, who is a professor of medicine, tenured, professor of pediatrics, rather, uh, tenured at the University of Florida, also has appointments in uh, the Department of Pediatrics epidemiology, obstetrics, and gynecology. And what prompted this interest in Dr. Rasmussen's uh, expertise, of course, as everyone knows, has been the recent escalation um, to the approval um, of uh, the COVID vaccine in, in children uh, now uh, from the ages of, um, of five to um, 13. So that five to 11, so that's gotten our attention. And uh, I think with the holiday season coming on us and all the complexities of children going back to school over the last uh, six months, I've sort of seen that with my own grandchildren, uh, we could use a little bit of uh, light on this field. So Dr. Rasmussen is uh, ideally suited uh, to shed this light. Uh, she had a background in, in genetics at the uh, University of Wisconsin. Um, did her MD at University of Florida in Gainesville. She's a Gator uh, uh, to some degree, as we just talked about. Uh, she then um, ended up doing a residency in pediatrics at Mass General, um, a fellow in uh, clinical genetics at Johns Hopkins. And um, from 94 to 96, she was a fellow in medical genetics, um, Department of Pediatrics and the Division of Genetics at the University of Florida. So having done all that, she stayed on at Florida for a couple of years. But then in um, 1999, and um, for, for, for some time after that, was involved uh, at the CDC. Uh, she was involved for a while uh, in, with uh, birth defects and developmental disabilities at the CDC. 2011, she moved on to the Influenza Coordination Unit. 2014, the Office of Public Preparedness. Um, 2018, uh, Department Director of Infectious Diseases at the CDC. And then uh, received a call back to her, one of her alma maters uh, at Gainesville and has been there since uh, in her current tenured Professor of Pediatrics uh, role. Along the way, she's published uh, uh, the 276 peer-reviewed articles and uh, has had over 33,000 citations for her work. So uh, we're in very good hands today. Um, so let me personally welcome you, uh, Dr. Rasmussen, uh, to our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So. Let me um, discuss the fact that uh, 
compared with adults and teenagers, uh, where we've had a bit of a track record, how well does COVID-19 vaccine work in children uh, aged 5 to 11, from what we can tell from the clinical trials and from other reports? What's your assessment of the efficacy um, of this um, vaccine? Yes, um, based on the data from the clinical trials, it appears that it works very well. Similar to how it works in adults, uh, about 90% uh, efficacy and uh, also good immunogenicity. So good levels of antibodies, what you would expect for kids compared to older persons, adolescents and adults. Um, so both uh, efficacious and showing good levels of antibodies. So really good news that it seems to work uh, in children like it works in adults. Now let's talk about the other side of the coin. Uh, what have been the most common side effects, adverse events in uh, kids five to 11 uh, during the clinical trials and, and how prevalent are they? And how one of the implications from your point of view uh, as a mother potentially uh, directing uh, your children to be vaccinated? Yeah, the good news is it seems that the side effects are similar to those in adults, although maybe not as common. Um, there are things like uh, local effects, like pain at the injection site, some redness, sometimes some swelling, and then some sy systemic effects as well, uh, muscle aches, headache, sometimes some nausea and vomiting, fever. Of course, like adults, that's how that's good information to tell us that the immune system is getting ready, that it's having uh, its uh, preparation for seeing COVID-19 in the future. So uh, it seems to be more side effects after the second dose than the first dose. Uh, but there, there's basically those local and systemic side effects that we've seen in adults. We have not seen uh, significant issues in the clinical trials with safety. So uh, as far as adverse outcomes, serious adverse events uh, were not seen being attributed to the vaccine in the clinical trials. Of course, the numbers in a clinical trial aren't going to allow you to see something that's one in a million or even 10 in a million. Um, those very rare sorts of adverse outcomes would not be seen in a clinical trial, the size that was done for uh, the Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, as I come across my patients who are still uh, reluctant to be vaccinated, um, adult patients, um, you know, they talk about miscellaneous adventures that have happened to their friends uh, soon after receiving COVID vaccinations, and that has decided them that they're going to wait. I'm not sure what they're waiting for, but that often is a discussion I have in my clinic as I try to twist arms and, and get patients vaccinated. Um, in, uh, in teenagers, certainly, when we moved into college football and uh, that vaccination discussion that took place earlier in the year, myocarditis came up um, as um, one red flag for the sports directors here at universities, uh, particularly, I'm sure, at Florida. Notre Dame got a lot of press. Well, what's our current take on the myocarditis story in general in maybe teenagers and these children age five to 11. Is there, is there any red flag? Is there any predictor? Is there any concern? Uh, there is a concern. Whenever there is an adverse effect, there is a concern. I think it's a very 
rare event. So the myocarditis that's been seen in adolescents and young adults, it seems to be more in males than in females. It seems to be more in that older age category. There were no cases of, of myocarditis seen in the clinical trials. And that was in about 3000 kids who received the vaccine. But again, that's, those are too small to see something that's as rare as what we were seeing with the myocarditis in um, older people. Um, I think one of the important things is myocarditis also occurs after getting COVID-19. So, you know, comparing whether you want to get COVID-19, which has a lot of effects of potentially um, landing a child in the hospital or in an intensive care unit, or even rarely dying, or um, do you want to get the vaccine? Um, I, I think you can get myocarditis for either one. Certainly the myocarditis that you can get from getting COVID-19 is much more frequent um, than getting it from the vaccine. But it, it is something that is, has occurred. It usually occurs in the first few days after getting the vaccine. And um, it seems to be short-lived. It seems that it's not like what we see sort of a virus-associated myocarditis. It seems to be more mild, responds well, uh, Kids are sometimes needing to be admitted to the hospital, not always, but they seem to be better in a few days. And based on the information we have right now, it doesn't look like there are gonna be long-term effects from that myocarditis. So uh, uh, I think right now, so the other thing is myocarditis in general is uh, something that we see more in males and in the teenage years and less in the five to 11 year olds. The other important thing is this dose of vaccine is a third of what the adolescents and adults are getting. It's 10 micrograms right. versus 30. Yeah. So my hope is that we're not going to see very much myocarditis. Um, I think all the pieces of information that you can put together suggest that it should be rare in the five to 11 year old category. And certainly the, the benefits of the vaccine would outweigh that, that potential small risk. Um. Pursuing that line of thinking further, what recommendations do you have for these children five to 11 who maybe should not get the vaccine or what recommendations or advice do you have for their, for their parents or their pediatricians? Yeah, there aren't really kids that, that um, are, there's very few contraindications to getting a COVID-19 vaccine. So that's a good thing. If you have a specific allergy to something in the vaccine, or if you've had a, a severe reaction to the first dose, you might wanna give some consideration of whether you have a second dose, but otherwise certainly egg allergies or things that might keep kids from getting some other vaccines or having concerns about some other vaccines aren't contraindications for this vaccine. So I think, um, I know how hard it is as a parent. I'm a mom of two kids and I know how hard it is to make a decision um, that affects your kids. But I think right now to emphasize to parents that the benefits of the vaccine greatly outweigh uh, the potential risks. I think that's, um, and I think it's hard to imagine that we're, that COVID-19 is gonna be out of our lives anytime soon. Yeah. The numbers seem to be continuing to go up and down. I think early on, we all hoped that we would beat it and we, we would be able to have COVID-19 in our rear view mirrors. We wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. I think right now the data suggests that it's gonna to continue to be around. And my sense is that if you don't get the COVID-19 vaccine, your, your child's likely going to get COVID-19 itself and COVID-19 itself uh, 
presents uh, serious risks to kids. So that's, that's the kind of uh, situation that I try to walk parents through when I talk with them. How about the relationship to uh, flu vaccine and bad uh, memories of flu vaccines in the family um, and the timing of flu vaccines with the COVID uh, vaccination situation? What, what are you recommending there? What, what's your view on any relationship between the flu vaccine and um, side effects in their child or in the family versus uh, extrapolating that to the COVID world? Uh, I don't think I would make that extrapolation. The, the good news is early on CDC recommendations were that you needed to separate the COVID vaccine from other vaccines, but the latest recommendation is you can have both vaccines at the same day. So if you're your pediatrician, mm -hmm. um, you can get the COVID-19 vaccine and the flu vaccine um, on the same day. Uh, if you prefer to maybe separate it, you can, but there isn't really any reason to do that. Um, let me ask you a question about another part of your career. My daughter just recently had a grandson and we had this discussion, I guess, during her pregnancy. Um, so what is known about COVID-19 vaccines during pregnancy? Should pregnant persons receive the vaccine? Any uh, hidden um, uh, unforeseen effects that may involve the fetus or the newborn? Any, any speculations or data on your experience in the, in the pregnancy world? Yeah, um, one of the things I've worked a lot on is the effects of emerging infections during pregnancy. So I worked on H1N1 flu and, um, and Zika, and then most recently on COVID-19. What we've learned is that COVID-19 can be really severe during pregnancy and uh, CDC put out a, um, an urgent recommendation uh, in August after there was a high number, uh, actually I think it was in September after a high number of deaths in pregnant women in August. Mm -hmm. What we know is that pregnant women, pregnant persons are at increased risk of um, uh, requiring intensive care unit care uh, in, ending up on ECMO, uh, on ending up needing to be intubated and ventilated if they get COVID-19. And even some studies suggest that they're at increased risk of dying if they get COVID-19. So I think it's really important to, to get that vaccine if, you're, if a person is pregnant. So I think, so what do we know about pregnant persons and the vaccine? Well, when the vaccine was first put out, we didn't have a lot of information specifically about the COVID-19 vaccine. Pregnant persons were excluded from the clinical trials is often the case for different clinical trials. Pregnant persons are excluded. That was the case for the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, we did have very reassuring information though from other vaccines. Certainly we recommend that all pregnant persons get the flu vaccine during pregnancy and also the, the pertussis, the Tdap vaccine that contains pertussis. And not only because it protects the mom, but it can protect the baby, the mom's antibodies cross the placenta and then can protect the baby for the first few months of life. Mm. We have a lot of information about how vaccines work during pregnancy and uh, that they're safe. Mm. And uh, therefore early on, the recommendations were weigh the risks and the benefits. In the first few months after a lot of people, especially a lot of healthcare providers who are at high risk of get, getting COVID-19, decided to be vaccinated 
against COVID-19. And so now we have a lot of safety data. We have data on uh, how do those uh, pregnant persons do and then how do their babies do after birth. And it's all been very reassuring. So the recommendation is really actually quite strong now, both from CDC and also from the professional organizations like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, and um, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine are all being making very strong recommendations for pregnant persons to get vaccinated during pregnancy. Well, let me ask you as um, editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Investigative Medicine and long-term academician like yourself, just on a career pathway question here, you were doing extremely well at the CDC. You were pretty high flying. Uh, what what uh, were the deciding factors that led you to return to your alma mater and get back into the academic? Uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge academics, as you know, but you got back into the, uh, into the academic machine. Um, tell us a bit about the uh, thought process that, uh, that decided you to make that decision. Yeah, I think I really wanted before I retired. So I, I had uh, turned 60 and I, before I retired, I really wanted to be a person taking care of patients again. Mm -hmm. And, in, you know, I, as a, as a physician at the CDC, I felt like my role was being a, a doctor for the population, yeah. which is an important role too, but I missed that one-on-one -on -one relationship with uh, patients and their families that I could be as a pediatrician and geneticist. And I knew that I was getting to that point where it might be hard to make a transition if I waited till I was a little, you know, too much older. Yeah. So I decided to make that change. And, and I think it's been a really good change. It's been wonderful to see families again and you, you know, when you see patients, you yeah. feel like you've made a difference every day, so. Good response. Um, so do you have any other um, recommendations or advice for our young graduates and uh, assistant professors, associate professors trying to wind their way up the ladder? Do you, um, are you endorsing organizations like the American Federation for Medical Research trying to get a good mentor uh, trying to focus on a specific clinical niche. Do you have some advice that may have been good for you in your career as you evolved? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest thing for me is to, um, it's going to sound kind of trite, but to be resilient mm -hmm. um, in academics. I knew this from when I was in academics early on. I knew this from when I was at CDC. I knew this from when I was, when now that I'm back in academics, there's a lot of times that you fail and you just need to get back on the horse. You know, you just have to keep up at it and keep trying and keep working your hardest. And um, I do think mentors, as you say, are really important. And um, I've really learned in my more senior part of my career that it's been important for me to share with young uh, students and fellows and young faculty, my failures as well as my successes. We all talk a lot about our successes, but I try to, I try to, you know, I don't want to go on and on about it, but I do like to say when I didn't, when, you know, I've got lots and lots of rejections through the years for papers, jobs, et cetera. And I like to share that information because I think sort of telling people, how did you recover from that? And how did you get back up and 
do it again the next day because that's what you have to do. You can't, you can't, um, you can't uh, whine about it too long. You just have to get back going. So that's sure. that's I think my biggest thing is just be resilient and and keep trying. And and um, uh, it, it is hard to find your niche. I think for me, one of the things has been finding the right collaborators because if you find the right collaborators. Even when you're down, they they help pull you back up. And I've had some outstanding uh, collaborators through the years. Are you continuing to be ground funded? Are you still involved in that uh, craziness as well? Yeah, I, I have some grant funding actually. Um, I, some from FDA, some from NIH, uh, some from Good. CDC. So mixing it up a little bit. So. Um, and I'm continuing to see patients, and uh, so it's it's an interesting and um, diverse career uh, after spending those 20 years at CDC. And I've been able to work a lot on COVID-19 recently, especially as as you know, related to kids and to pregnant mm -hmm. persons. Well, congratulations on your career. Um, I'm very thank you. Glad to see how motivated you are and how involved you are as you continue to go forward. So thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Uh, I know members of the AFMR will be very grateful to you. And uh, if you have a chance to spread the gospel down there in the hallways of uh, Gainesville, uh, try to stimulate um, younger colleagues to think about joining AFMR. It's a good, way, it's a good way to go up the ladder and evolve your career, publish in our journal investigative medicine, go to our meetings. We have these uh, regional meetings. We have the Western Society in Carmel in January, Southern Society, which mainly overlaps Florida. I have a lot of colleagues there in GI that go to New Orleans, which is always a good excuse to go to New Orleans. And then we have the Midwest in Chicago and we have the Eastern in Washington. So yeah, I know you know the game pretty well, but if you can stimulate some interest in our group, um, I'd appreciate it. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much. Thanks for including me on in your call. Yeah, great job and enjoy meeting you and congratulations again. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye. So, so colleagues, um, we're winding up this uh, podcast, which will be posted over the next few days. And we hope uh, you will have a chance to review it, pass it on to your colleagues and Please feel free to give me some input in time. Make sure I'm doing, doing the right stuff here and we're getting some great speakers, I know. So all the very best for the upcoming uh, holidays. Our next podcast will be in December. So have a great Thanksgiving and uh, all the very best. Signing off, Richard McCallum. Bye-bye.